There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. A student of English literature recently asked me a question I found difficult to answer. They said to me, um, what was the last uh, book you read that was uh, a novel? And uh, I couldn't remember. Now that reveals something about me to, to you and to them. I don't read novels. I don't read fictional stuff. I don't have a lot of time for it. The last book I read, I think, was about 20 years ago, and it was the collected works of C.S. Lewis that cannot be surpassed unless you want to arm wrestle with me about Tolkien. But uh, I don't really read fiction. I don't have a lot of time for it. I prefer books about wood, to be honest, um, and that uh, tell me lots of interesting stuff about how to pile my wood pile. And uh, did you know that there are seven different types of axe? There are four types of chainsaw. Fascinating stuff like that. Ash has a water content of 16%. These are big facts that you need to know to get you through life. I like books like that. I like books about railways and mountains. I like books about skiing and scuba diving. I do not have any time for novels. I do like biographies. I have a slight penchant for historical books and historical literature, but not novels. I haven't got a lot of time for fiction, especially not science fiction. I'm just not that sort of guy, forgive me. But when it comes to the Bible, a lot of the Bible is communicated through biographies. I have time for biographies. I like the odd sporting biography for 50p from a charity shop near you and near me. Not full price, heaven forbid. I like the stories of Bill Bryson as he travels the world and offends every culture that he journeys to as uh, he looks under the skin of different cultures. He's a very interesting writer. But when you come to the Bible, there's poetry. I like poetry. There's history. There's lots of history. But more often than not, in the Old Testament especially, God communicates to us through the lives of people, women and men. It's biographies. 
And that tells us something, the way God chooses not to speak to us through essays, not really lectures, but through the stories of flesh and blood women and flesh and blood men. And uh, there's no really more flesh and blood type of guy than Elijah, the character we meet today. 1 Kings 17, 18, 19, they tell the story of Elijah. Because it struck me as I was in preparation, the fact that God speaks through the lives of normal men and normal women, um, rather than lectures and kind of high-level bullet points and presentations and executive summaries, God reveals himself to us in really a different way than most other religions. Someone has said God didn't send an airtight argument. He sent an airtight person. He didn't send an abstract principle. He sent a, or we could even say the, human being, his son, Jesus. But less on that and more on Elijah, and I'd love for you to have 1 Kings 19, and just flick back a page to 1 Kings 18 in front of you. Let me uh, give you some background. It's on the screen. Um, Israel were in a time of terrible spiritual compromise. King Ahab had married a foreign lady called Queen Jezebel. She was a passionate worshipper of Baal. She was an outsider. She was from up north. There's always trouble from up north, whatever the country. She was from the area of Tyre and Sidon. And she worshipped Baal. She was the daughter of the high priest of Tyre and Sidon. And so with this political, marital, if even that's a word, marriage and alliance between God's people Israel and the queen of Tyre and Sidon, so to speak, as they came together, there was an opportunity for a corruption of sorts like there's never been before. Queen Jezebel, this uh, lover, passionate worshipper of Baal, she's now queen of Israel. And because of that, she could do whatever she wanted. And she didn't just establish small pockets of worship to Baal. It was worship of Baal from top to bottom, from east to west, from north to south. The whole cultic nature of Baal worship was pervasive in God's people Israel. There were worship centers. There was a hierarchy. They had created a worship system where God was ignored and Baal was exalted. It was a terrible time of spiritual decline and spiritual decay that centers around a weak-willed king, Ahab, and a strong, powerful, godless woman called Jezebel. And by the time we get to 1 Kings 18, that's been squashed, we get to Mount Carmel, which is not a sweet place to go to. It's a place, a significant mountain, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai is the same mountain as Mount Carmel. And there is a huge showdown. It's like the OK Corral of the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 18. God in his justice and judgment have sent a drought. He's trying to wake up his people to say, spiritually, you are poor. You've forgotten me. You've not got amnesia, but you've rejected my loving and kind rule. And you're following a different God, the God of Baal. That's a corn God. That's a a God of fertility once again. And it gets very, very dramatic. And the more I've looked at it, I've thought, why have Hollywood not got onto this yet? They've kind of rehashed and butchered Noah's story. They've told the story of Egypt. They've done a pretty good story of the resurrection of Jesus and the life of Jesus as well. But why have they not got their hands on 1 Kings 18 and the story of 
Baal and the story of God, the story of Ahab and Jezebel and the story of God's prophet Elijah. It's quite a story, 1 Kings 18. It's a jewel to end all jewels. Let me recap. 1 Kings 18, you've got uh, these significant number of prophets of God. There's 450 ratio to one at least, if not 850 to one, depending on how you read it. And Baal says, I want a fair fight. He says, I'll let you go first, but I want you to get all the prophets together. And I want you to uh, see if your God is God or if Yahweh, the God of Israel, is in charge. He says, so I'm going to be fair. So you go first. You build yourself an altar of stone and earth. And on top of it, I want you to kill a sacrificial bull. And then I want you to pray to your God. And if your God is God, then fire will descend and consume the altar. The altar to your God, to Baal. But, but if your God is not God, nothing will happen. And so they danced around again and again around the Baal altar from morning till midday. Verse 26 and 27 of chapter 18, after their praying and dancing, says this. The prophets of Baal... From morning till noon, they said, Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. There was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Horrible histories, if you're a fan of those, if you're a teenager or an adult. They're very, very good at telling the underbelly of history in a way that just uh, ignites children's and adults' imagination. Verse 27 is very interesting. Sometimes, to our great loss, the translators are uncomfortable with words, and so they make it more polite than it actually, actually is. So this word busy, verse 27 on the screen behind me, actually is a taunt. Um, Elijah is mocking the god Baal, and he's saying perhaps he's off urinating. Perhaps he's off in the water closet. Perhaps he's off having a wee. It literally says that. But we in our modern sensibilities, and in the King James even, we don't like the uh, authenticity of the Bible. And it's something to our great loss when we sugarcoat it. Verse 29, it goes on for hours and hours in 1 Kings 18. They get into more and more of a fervor. They start to cut themselves. And verse 29 says, as midday passed, they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. Repeated word, no one answered. Repeated word, no one paid attention. Elijah wanted a fair fight. He gave them all day. And yet Baal was mute. Baal was silent. And the people, the prophets of Baal, were very, very weary and tired. And probably dizzy. And verse 30 of 1 Kings 18, Elijah rose. It was evening. And his first thing he said was, let's build a new altar. Let's get some uh, 12 new stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's get some more earth. Let's get a new bull. And then I'll pray to God. But before I pray to him, I want you to uh, soak it with water. Take four big urns, the most, you know, most water you can get. Go and fetch it if you need to, even though it's been a drought for three years. This is important. I want you to be in absolutely no doubt about the true nature of God and his power and his authority. And you can read it. They soaked the altar so much that the water, the wood, the bull, the stone, and the trough around it was 
absolutely to the brim. It was soaking wet, no spontaneous combustion here. And then verse 36 of chapter 18, you can read it for yourself. Elijah set forward and he prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Here's a man, he's been waiting his turn all day. He prays a one 30-second prayer or thereabouts. And then notice what's happened. Fire immediately descended from heaven to earth and consumed everything. Consumed the bull, wood, stone, the earth. That was all sodden and saturated to the brim. And the fire of God consumed it all. And then the people responded, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's the most amazing demonstration of the power of God in the Old Testament. His authority. And the chapter ends, chapter 18, ends with a, with a glowing sense of God at work and this small cloud in the distance. That, uh, as Elijah prays seven times, sending his servant back and forth, this small cloud, the size of a man's hand, off in the distance, is coming. But God is going to answer his prayer. The drought's going to end. And there's going to be torrential rain. And Ahab escapes. He escapes to his capital city of Jezreel. And you're wondering what's going to happen next. God's just shown his might, the strength of his arm. And what's interesting in chapter 17, verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1, what is decisive in chapter 17 and 18 is the word of God. God says something and it happens. But as you turn to chapter 19, verse 1, what is decisive there is the word of Ahab's wife, Jezebel. Verse 2 of chapter 19. She vows to take Elijah's life. Verse 3 of chapter 19. Elijah responds by running for his life. And verse 4 of chapter 19. Elijah wants God to take his life. These two key words of word and life. This massive demonstration, neon lights, big sound 3D, Bose stereo sounds of the power of God, 1 Kings 18. And what happens next? Look at verse 46 of chapter 18. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, tucking his cloak into his belt. He ran. He overtook the chariot. He beat Linford Christie and Bolt and everybody else. But look at what happens four verses later in chapter 19. He says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am nothing. I'm no better than my ancestors. This great demonstration of power. Four sentences later, four verses later, Lord, take my life. And that has made it, people who write on the Bible think this is a load of baloney. There's no way that this could happen. That God could show his might and his strength. And then four verses later, this man would be wanting his life to be taken from him. That just shows that the Bible is fiction. I don't think it does. It tells more about the translators and the commentators than it does about the Bible. Because the Bible is so realistic about the human heart and the human condition. You can be on the heights, you can be feeling great, and then very quickly, if you are like me, you can be down in the depths. 
Think about the other people that have said the words that Elijah said, Lord, take my life. Think of Moses in Numbers 11. Think of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. These men that have had great victories, great spiritual high points in their ministries, and then within moments, within a really short period of time, they say the same thing, Lord, take away my life. Tremendous success, strong Christians, and then they are battling in the depths of spiritual depression. Shows the integrity of the Bible, not that it doesn't work. It shows the realism of Christianity. But notice what God does in 1 Kings 19. What does God do to this man, Elijah, who wants God to take his life from him? Look at verses 5 to 9. Elijah fell asleep, and at once the angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Notice, please, the tenderness of God. Look at what happens. It's so practical. There are three things that God does. Verses 3 to 8, the first thing, he sends an angel to cook him a meal. It happens twice. Verse 5, after this first angel cake, whatever it may be, He says, get up. Verse 8, second meal. Not get up, but he says the journey is too much for you. He knows the heart of his servant. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't counsel him on a six-week plan. He doesn't say you need to repent. How dare you think like that? God knows that Elijah needs rest and he needs a good meal twice. He needs sleep and food and time to recover. Look at verse 11. The second thing God does. He meets him on Mount Sinai. God comes to his servant in need. And he says, I want you to experience my presence. You want me to take your life? I'm not going to do that, but what you need is to see see more of me. And so there's the incredible wind that blows rocks apart like TNT. I mean, that's quite a wind. And then comes the earthquake and then comes the fire. Earthquake, wind and fire. Not a 70s pop group. Earthquake, wind, and fire, in the Bible language, those are three signs of the judgment and the power and the glory of God. They're uh, forbidding signs. They're destructive things. And yet Elijah realizes that God isn't in them. And then when we get to verse 12 of chapter 19, he puts up his hood. As this still, small voice, as the King James Bible says, literally, Hebrew word there is a quiet breath. God reveals himself, not in the earthquake, wind, or fire, but in the quiet breath that comes. As he puts his hood over his head, Elijah realizes that now I'm talking with God. I'm listening to him. And notice the third thing that uh, God does to his weary servant. He says, now you've eaten twice. Now you've met with me once. It's time to go back to work. Go and anoint a king from Syria. Go and anoint Jehu. Go and anoint Elisha, your successor. Get back to work. Get back to business. There's work to be done. That's the recap. Here are three things we learn about the world, about us, and about God. The world, us, and God. In 1 Kings 19, God is a brilliant restorer 
of a wounded heart. This week, I've met a new lady. Her name is Brené Brown. She's an American uh, psychologist. And she's helped me understand this passage in a wonderful way, I hope. I want to share with you. When was the last time that uh, fear created a narrative in your head or in your heart? When was the last time that fear created a narrative? Brené asks. Think of a, a life that went something like this. There is a phone call. It's an answering machine you were out, they couldn't get through, and it's from the doctor again. It's the second time they try to call you today, maybe even it's the third, and they can't get through. Please, will you call us urgently, says the doctor. Now, what happens when you get that call on voicemail? Do you think, oh, all is well. I'm just going to uh, watch a bit of daytime TV, I'll make myself a pot of tea, and I'll ring them in a while. I'm sure they're just ringing for a polite chat. Or do you start to create a narrative in your mind that thinks there is trouble? I gave that sample last week and they must have found something. They normally take months or weeks to get back to me. They've got back to me in a few days. I knew that lump was trouble when I felt it on my breast. Perhaps it's cancer. I knew that was, and so on. Fear can create a narrative in your mind very quickly. Perhaps it's not a doctor, perhaps it's a person in authority. It's the head teacher in the playground. They come marching towards you and they say, please can you make an appointment to come and see me next week? And immediately you think, oh, what's little Johnny done? It's always Johnny, excuse me. What's little Johnny done? What's Miranda done? Let's change the name. What's my child done? And you start to create a narrative of, oh no, I need to go to the secretary. I'm in trouble. They must have, and so on. And perhaps they just want to say, hey, could you help us with your expertise in PTA? Fear creates a narrative in the voice, in the space rather. And the worst thing we can do, I'm looking at people under 40, maybe even under 30, is the, uh, the unanswered text. By that I mean if it's not back to you in two minutes. When you send a text or when you send a WhatsApp and someone doesn't respond to you relatively immediately, you start to create a narrative. Fear kind of wells up in your heart and you think, depending on who the person is, what have I done to offend them? Have they been run over by the bus? They don't love me anymore. What have I done? They've offended me. How am I going to get home? Or whatever it may be. Fear has power to create a deep narrative. And here's the thing Brené Brown says. God is never in the narrative. God is never in the narrative that you create if you're a Christian. Fear creates this big narrative. Or my favorite one of all. You're just gone to bed. And uh, the volume in the house, when you go to bed, is turned up to the max by someone. And you hear perhaps the hot water system going off, but you uh, don't think it's the hot water system. Fear kicks in, and there is a herd of wildebeests that are coming up the stairs, and they're going to crush you. Or perhaps there's a burglar. Did I lock the back door? All these things start to happen as fear creates a narrative in your mind. And here is a man who is very low, and he says, there is a woman who's after me, and her name is Jezebel. She said, chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, she's going to see, excuse me, chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, she's going to have my head on the block within 24 hours. I am all alone. God is not powerful to rescue me from this woman. Please take my life. I'm all by myself. That's what fear does. Fear enables you to forget God. Fear enables you to forget God's faithfulness that has just been revealed in the most profound, unique, powerful way in 1 Kings 18. 
And here's Elijah, four sentences later, says, take my life. This woman is after me. You've left me all alone. Fear creates a narrative in our hearts. And what does God say in his kindness? Verse 18 of chapter 19. Elijah, you are not alone. There are 7,000 people who also serve me. I'm doing all kinds of stuff, but your fear is keeping you from seeing what I'm about. You need to get up and go back to work, verse 15. Go and anoint Haziel, king of Syria. Now that's very interesting. Here is God saying to Elijah, I want you to go and anoint a king who's not part of Israel. We don't know that he becomes a Christian, but I want you to go and anoint him because he is going to do my work for me. There's no indication he ever becomes a believer. And what is God saying? Elijah, I'm in charge. You might think you're all alone. You might think that you're going to lose your head by the end of the day, so you want me to take your life before Jezebel does. But I'm in charge. I'm at work. And I can even use a pagan, a non-Christian king, a non-Israelite king to do my bidding if I choose to. Friends, if you do not get a firm grasp on the character and faithfulness and purposes of God, you are going to be like uh, someone who experiences whiplash emotionally every day. You're going to be like peaks and troughs emotionally. You're going to have faith not filling your horizon, but fear creating a narrative where God will always be absent. You will be experience these uh, extreme heights and utter despair, just like chapters 18 and 19 of 1 King. It's so important. That's what Elijah is learning as he looks out into the world. Will faith shape my perspective as I look out into the world, or will it be shaped by fear? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Secondly, I think Elijah teaches us something about ourselves, something about ourselves. A lot of times I get very super spiritual. I've got a bit better as I've uh, been married to Joe for longer, but also as I've grown older. She's good for me. Here, I trust you can see in chapter 19, God demonstrates a multidisciplinary approach. What do I mean? If you've walked through someone's life who's had depression, if you've walked with someone or if you struggle with depression yourself, it is profoundly difficult and damaging when someone comes alongside you and says, you just need to take these pills, you must have been far away from God for this to happen and gives you a very trite and inaccurate and unhelpful diagnosis that's not in the Bible at all. Look at what we learn from 1 Kings 19. It's a multidisciplinary approach from God to Elijah. We have a physical nature, and so what does God say Elijah needs? You need some rest. You need some food. And you need to spend some time with me. Multidisciplinary approach. No lecture, no counselling first, no telling off. God knows what his servant needs. I mean, it's not like you or I are kind of a disembodied spirit. The last time I checked, myself and flesh and blood, we have a, a psychological nature and a physiological nature as well. So that means sometimes depression, when you feel low, when you say, someone please take my life or I'll take it myself. Sometimes part of our depression is physical and physiological. We have a relational nature, so sometimes we don't need medicine, we need friends, we need rest, we need food, two meals that God sends to his servant. 
We're also, because we're physical, we have a creative nature. Sometimes we need to see a sunset. We need beauty. Sometimes we need a good book. Along for me is it's not a novel. Sometimes we need to listen to a wonderful piece of music or see a concert or go to the theatre. It's all part of our humanity. And here we see God, the best counsellor ever. And he gives his servant a multidisciplinary approach. I mean, here's Elijah. He just lets him sleep. God lets his servant sleep. He doesn't wake him up. He gives him a bit of veg time. Sometimes what we need is a, a walk by the sea and a stay at a and b But notice what also happens. Elijah takes some time, takes some food, takes some rest. But then spend some time with me. Sometimes we can be too super spiritual. You just need to read your Bible. But sometimes we cannot be spiritual enough. And there's a balance there in our humanity. When was the last time you spent 40 days seeking God's word and his face through his word? You see? Sometimes we can be super spiritual. Sometimes we can be not spiritual enough. And as the Bible shows, a multidisciplinary approach because I and you are complex people. God teaches us about the world. He teaches us about ourselves. And then he teaches us about himself. What is God saying, thirdly, finally, when this earthquake, wind, and fire come? They're clearly from God. And yet Elijah realizes something. He realizes that's not how I really find him. He's not there. He's not revealed himself to me through that. It's as if God is clearly saying, 1 Kings 18, Mount Carmel, that's not the way to go. I don't reveal myself normally through earthquake, wind, and fire. Those big supernatural 3D sound effects, earth-shaking, dramatic events. Actually, that doesn't change people's lives and their hearts. It's not the miraculous. You need my word. You need my word. You need to experience me in the, in the quiet, still, small voice. You might say, oh, Lord, I need you to heal my hip. I need you to uh, save my kids. I need you to move this roadblock out of the way in my life. I need you to do something miraculous. But actually, God says through Elijah, what, Elijah, you need the most is you need to know me more. You need to come closer to me through my word and you need to hear my voice. You need to read it until you meet with me. You think, oh, well, that's just Elijah. Well, no, it's not. Remember the story in Luke chapter 16 in the ministry of Jesus? Jesus tells a story, a parable of the rich man and a man called Lazarus. It's a famous parable where um, there is a, a, a picture that's painted of someone who's saying, if only you went and told more, if only you revealed yourself in a more rich and a more a sound and lights and dramatic way, then my loved ones who are still on earth would not come to hell with me. He says, Father Abraham, if Lazarus can come back from the dead and can go and talk to my brothers who are still alive, they won't come to hell. And what does Abraham say? Even if someone came back from the dead, that's not going to change their hearts. They already have enough. They have Moses and the prophets. God's revealed enough of his character so that people can see who he is. You don't need George Lucas to get involved with Star Wars special effects. You don't need Spielberg to do some magic. What you need is to draw near to God through his word. 
And notice, with all the fireworks of chapter 18, with all the unique brokenness of chapter 19, God could have spoken a new word, but he didn't. He's saying, I've said all that I need to say. But here's the most important thing. If earthquake, wind, and fire, biblically, is shorthand of saying God's judgment and his justice, how does Elijah survive? If God reveals his power, how does Elijah survive? Why is he not consumed? Because if God's judgment came down at that moment, Elijah would be consumed, and so would you and I. It's a picture in the shadow of Mount Carmel of the way of Calvary. The reason Elijah wasn't consumed at that point, the reason that you and I won't be consumed today, is because all the wrath of God, the fire of God, and the wind of God, and the power of God against our sin came down on his son. The reason the still small voice was there for Elijah and for us is because in the still small voice is the moment of grace. That's what Martin Luther thought about this passage. Elijah didn't understand that. He thought judgment, spectacular fireworks like last night were the way to go. But what God is trying to say is this, and what God does say, judgment is my strange work. It's part of his character. But God's judgment and his justice is a means to an end. And it came down on Jesus so that God's grace might abound. You see, what governs your perspective on the world? Is it faith and God and his goodness and his promises, or is it fear about tomorrow because you can't see? The gospel, when you grasp it, helps you understand yourself, helps you understand the world, and it helps you understand the Lord who comes in his grace to Elijah, and he comes through his word, the still small voice, and he's the one who comes gently pursuing us. He's the one who came in weakness. He's the one who comes not to bring vengeance, but he comes to speak a final word in his son so that we might turn to him. He's got a gracious voice. I wonder if you've heard it. I wonder if you think God will just appear in the supernatural and the big. But Christmas tells us that actually God, God came in the small so that we might see him and know him. Let's pray.